Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Uh, but before we read uh, the Bible this morning, I'll uh, just, just pray for us. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank, you for, thank you for Christmas. Um, but yeah, Father, we do pray that uh, you just help us uh, to, to focus and, and to listen to your word uh, this morning. Uh, help us just to put aside the, uh, the, the, fl- the fluffiness and distractions that come with Christmas uh, and just to focus on yeah, just the glory that you have uh, revealed to us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we're going to read from Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 26. We'll start in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and, be call, and you will call him Jesus. You will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word of God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who who has believed that the Lord will fulfill her promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Scott's word.
Okay, well, good morning, church. It's uh, good to be back together, isn't it, this Sunday and uh, looking at God's Word. So keep your Bibles open there on uh, whatever book or device that you have there on you, and we'll be uh, looking, continuing our series on the wonder of Christmas. Because isn't Christmas just that wonderful time of year? Uh, you know, hopefully you're getting into the swing of things and you're uh, getting into the, the preparations and uh, uh, buying up food, and, and probably most of all, you're probably sorting out your gifts too, aren't you? And, I, and I'm appreciative of the, the gifts that uh, you guys have given us this morning. Uh, definitely something that we'll reflect on and, and have a good read through later. But I mean, uh, is there anything more iconic than Christmas and gifts? Isn't that just the kind of thing that the delight of opening gifts? Kids and presents particularly, they love it. Uh, it's probably the first thing that they think, that my kids think of when they think Christmas. But I have to say that I always think that actually gift-giving at Christmas is such a fraught exercise, isn't it? I mean, it's filled with so much expectation, and yet there is always a risk of disappointment. Maybe you don't get something that you, that you really want. Maybe it's a piece of clothing that's the wrong size or the wrong style. Maybe it's something that just, it's just not you. You know, it's like, like okay, I, I, I appreciate the gift of thought and that, but it's just not really me. Or something that is actually, it's really you, but it's so you that you already have one already. Isn't that just the kind of potholes of gift giving at Christmas? Uh, so the, the, fraught, the possibility of having your feelings hurt because maybe someone got a good gift and you got a dad, or uh, maybe, maybe you, you kind of left that feeling of, well, how come no one knows what, what I really want? Who, how come they don't kind of get me? It's sort of silly, isn't it? Then they get to the point where you kind of go on, well, this whole gift-giving season hasn't got a little bit out of hand when it's all about trying to fulfill some, some wish that, that someone else has, and, uh, and you don't want to be the ungrateful gift receiver either. And then there's the gift-giving. I mean, this might be confessions of someone who's not a very natural gift-giver, uh, but when you see someone who's good at coming up with gifts, well you really notice it. I mean, whoever came up with uh, some nice little messages from church to us as, as your staff team here, we really appreciate it. That's thought. That's, that's a, good of, uh, a bit of good thinking there. Because it seems to me that half the stress of Christmas is just trying to find appropriate gifts for everyone. Now, don't hear me wrong for saying that I'm against gift-giving at Christmas. I definitely am not. Uh, I think it's a great tradition to have. But I wonder if, actually, we should be thinking less about what we can give and even about what we can receive. But in fact, actually, seeing that actually one of the wonders of Christmas is actually the way in which generosity just becomes part of our, our, our culture, part of our society. You know, I think it's, uh, it's a proven thing that people give more to charities as well during Christmas to the less well-off, more than any other time of the year. And hey, that's a great thing. Well, we're going to be coming back to this Christmas story to unwrap a little bit more of the story because we want to get a true sense in which where does generosity come from? Why is it that Christmas is a special time in which we particularly are looking out for the sake of others? You see, last week we heard about the conception of John the Baptist to Elizabeth and Zechariah and the joy of the one who was coming, who was going to prepare people for God, that he would turn people back to God. 
because that meant that God was coming. Now, Elizabeth and Mary, that we read about earlier, were probably cousins, probably cousins, uh, maybe a generation or two apart, so uh, there might be, you know, first or second cousin, uh, once or twice removed, you kind of understand that terminology. Uh, But what we're going to see now is the second part of this Christmas story. We're going to now see about uh, Mary and her miraculous pregnancy. Now, if you compare the two stories, you'll notice a lot of similarities. The angelic visitors who come along and bring a message, a message of a a really highly unlikely uh, pregnancy for these two women. Now, Elizabeth's pregnancy was received with much joy as an older woman, an older childless woman, finally uh, having a chance to be a mother. But Mary's pregnancy, we saw in this story, was shown to be one of, of great favor from God, right? Great favor from God. It starts like this, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Well, church, when you put yourself into the shoes of this young woman... She's probably actually not much older than maybe 14, 15. Some people say even younger than that. And then she's visited by an angel who who pronounces that she's favoured by God. Right? It's mentioned twice there, actually, uh, there in verse 28, but also there in verse 30 again. Why is Mary chosen? Why is she deserving of God's favour? I mean, so far, all the details that we've got about her is that she is a very average, ordinary woman. In fact, maybe you could even say that actually the description of of the fact she's from Nazareth, part of Galilee, in fact, she's very much from a little backwater town uh, in a corner of of Israel, the kind of places that that people would really look down upon and really kind of thumb their noses up about it. You know, I don't know if you, what kind of places that you think of, towns or maybe even suburbs in Brisbane, uh, the ones that, uh, you know, you kind of think of them as being a bit overrun with drugs or crime or kind of, you know, those sorts of places. Well, that's where Mary's from. And it's not really kind of very positive description, but it's almost included there to help us see just how ordinary she is. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and we call the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So you see the favor that's bestowed upon Mary is the privilege of being the mother of the one that's going to be called the Most High, the one who's going to become a kingly ruler. Now, only one problem for Mary, of course, that she is a virgin. She's one pledged to be married, betrothed to Joseph. Now, she might be young, but she's not naive. She understands the the impossibility of this situation. In fact, what's interesting is that Mary never entertains the possibility that this means that she must actually go and sleep with Joseph before they're married. Verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One is to be born, we call the Son of God. 
Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said, who was to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Now, I just want to take a quick theology lesson here for a second, okay? This might be for the budding theologians out there, those who are like tracking some of the themes and the, the big ideas that are going on here, because we've had it now mentioned a couple of times here that Mary is going to give birth to a son, the son of the Most High, the son of God. But what do you think of? What does it mean to be the son of God? Because I'll give you a little clue, there's a lot more to being the Son of God than to be God the Son, right? That's kind of what we think of. We think, oh, the Son of God, well, that's that's God the Son, the second person of the truth. That's, That's God coming down in human form to join us here on earth. Now, that's all right and good, actually. That's all completely correct. But actually, in the whole, if you take the whole scope of the Bible, there's actually three things in the Old Testament, three other entities, three people, three groups of people that are called also the Son of God, right? Here they are. See, the Son of God was a title given, firstly, it was given to Adam. Adam, and that kind of makes sense, right? The first human being uh, created from the dust by God's Word. Uh, it's called uh, God's Son. But then Israel, Israel, the nation of the Old Testament, was also called God's son. And God, again, he cares for his people very much like a father. But then thirdly, it was King David. King David himself was called God's son. And King David, the great king of Israel in the Old Testament, he becomes God's son and he receives some really important promises about being God's son. See, let me show them to you here. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. This is David writing this psalm. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. So that's David writing there, but God actually affirms this himself to Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. You see, it's not just that David himself was uh, to be considered God's son, but actually David was promised that he would have a descendant who would be called God's son. Now, to try and kind of piece some of this together for you, uh, the Son of God is, in its own way, it's a, it's a vocation, right? It's not just a relationship of, of sonship to God, but actually it's a relational, it's a vocation that as Adam rules earth on behalf of God, he, he's ruling that as the image of God, the one who reflects God and represents God to the earth, Israel was given the task of being a light to the nations, the nation of Israel that would bless the entire world. And King David also in his own unique role as God's anointed king. Right, so there's lots of great callings here, great callings about being that representative, being that representative of this everlasting kingdom. Now, 2022, I reckon it's going to be the year that will be remembered that Queen Elizabeth finally passed on, isn't it? 
See, I've lived my entire life under one single monarch, and just a reminder, we are in fact still under the British monarchy. In fact, until a few months ago, I just assumed that Queen Elizabeth would pretty much live forever. I mean, it was sort of, you know, she was described as like this constant, this, this person who was just always there, has been there through uh, world wars and financial crises, and, and yes, even the pandemic more recently. You know, Bonnie and I love The Crown, the Netflix series about her life, but, you know, with her passing, it was just that reminder that our rulers, our kings and queens, as excellent as Queen Elizabeth was and as a follower of Jesus even for her, that she's finally in the grave. Our rulers pass on. See, what God promises here is a true, everlasting ruler, the one who would represent God's rule here on earth, the one who succeeds where Adam and David and Israel all failed, the one who would be the last Adam, the perfect Israel, the everlasting ruler from the line of David, the one who will never fail. So what does this all mean? What does this all mean, I hear you ask? Well, there's a whole point being made here to Mary that she's giving birth to God's ultimate representative ruler on earth. And so what you're going to see of his rule is going to be representative of God's rule on earth. Now, many at the time thought, well, and were waiting, expecting for this Messiah to come, and they're expecting someone who's going to be the big, powerful king who's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, who was, you know, really considered to be oppressing the, the Jewish nation at this point. But as you know from this Christmas story, he comes as the most humble of kings, really, with not so much to commend him, born in a manger, born to an ordinary woman with a distinct lack of royal fanfare. In fact, I think you could say the whole Christmas story is based around God's unmerited favour to ordinary people. But what we see here is a picture of God's kingdom. This isn't the kingdom that's going to go and, and start smashing all the Roman rulers right here and now. No, it's to say that actually God's kingdom wasn't about great, mighty, uh, uh, kind of ruling, going to create a new Roman empire under Jesus. No, it comes very much as the, the kingdom for the humble, for the humble. In fact, Mary, I think the whole way through in this story is actually an example of discipleship for us. If you look at verse 38. This is Mary's response. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. See, this is the perfect response of faith. Mary responding how she does, expressing uh, extreme faith, really. Like, I mean, this is a pretty wild and extreme plan, isn't it? That he, ordinary me, this young woman, to give birth to the king of Israel, the one who would represent God's rule on earth. And although Mary never asked for one, Elizabeth's pregnancy does serve as something of a sign for her. Two women bearing the two most important people in God's salvation plan here, and they get to stay together for three months. See, church, in lots of ways, Mary is a model for us as Christians. She demonstrates just the regular pattern of Christian life. God speaks, and what does she do? 
she responds with trust, with faith. She obeys with joy. She tells the world of what God will do. See, for Mary, God's word is trustworthy. He's faithful to his promises. He shows mercy. Mary does something that that actually I think many of us won't think to do. She goes and, and praises God. She magnifies God. See, it's there towards the end of the chapter. We see Mary utters a song that's known as the Magnificat. So was her song of magnification, of, of praise God. Praising God, his character, his actions to all who would listen. See, verse 46, read it through with me. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the servant state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Do you see part one there about God looking down on a humble servant like her, showing favor to her? But it's not just for her either. Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. This is all about a God of mercy. Not a God of conquering kingdoms, a God who wants to extend his mercy to those who would fear him. Indeed, verse 51, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. This is the God who stands against the proud and the humble, and he stands by the humble and the hungry. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And then you see in the final part that he stands by his covenant people the people whom he has made promises to. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months, then returned home. You see, uh, if you summarize kind of Mary's song there, it's all about the reversing of fortunes, right? That he would show favor onto someone humble rather than someone who's royal, that she would actually bring down the proud and the powerful and lift up the humble and the hungry, that he would show faithfulness to his people. See, this is known as the great reversal because there was a reversal of fortunes, right? That when it comes to power and privilege and wealth, that God will, God's kingdom will be there for those who are struggling in life now who are down the bottom, who are on the edges of society. Those were the ones who will suddenly find themselves top and center in God's kingdom. You see, this is very much the kind of king that we had in Jesus, isn't it? Here's some verses in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you might, by his poverty, might become rich. And James writes this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, church, this is a declaration of God's judgment on the arrogant, on the proud, and those who are the exact opposite of the humble and the hungry. These are the ones who particularly will turn to be resistant to hearing God proclaim the kingdom of God through Jesus. Their sense of security and well-being prevents them from seeing how dependent they are on God's mercy. 
you see that having it all in this life can make you actually numb to the call to eternal life. The proud and the arrogant effectively shut themselves out of the kingdom, refusing to uh, accept God's mercy, refusing the call of God's king. You see, I actually think in lots of ways that that's the picture of the kingdom. And it's supposed to be a real comfort for those of us who actually find life a real struggle. That Jesus doesn't come for those who have it all together, who's got life all under control. It's about those who turn in their need and their dependence on the God of this universe. In fact, I think actually it's precisely those who don't have it all together who recognize our need for God. And that's the wonder of God's mercy. That is what Christmas is all about. See, I think it's when you kind of really realize that, that uh, that's why you realize that Christmas is so important. It's not just about the giving of gifts between, uh, you know, comfortable middle-class people in the West, but it's actually about God's generosity to those who are spiritually bankrupt. Now, uh, I don't know uh, how many of you know the true story of St. Nicholas, the one uh, behind the one and only Santa Claus, uh, I don't know if you've heard the, the story of his life. He, was, uh, he, was, he lived around the uh, third century, so kind of in the early days of the church. Uh, St. Nicholas, he, uh, uh, what happened to him? You know, he had wealthy parents. He had very wealthy parents uh, who brought him and raised him as a Christian and, and understanding what it meant to, to follow Jesus. Uh, now, unfortunately, his parents actually died in an epidemic, right? Just like, a bit like in the pandemic that we had uh, while Nicholas was still young. But what he did as he grew up is that Nicholas actually used that inheritance to assist the needy and the sick and the suffering. In fact, he became very well known for his generosity in the town in which he lived. He dedicated his whole life to wanting to serve God with that generosity and uh, eventually was appointed as the Bishop of Myrna. Uh, Nicholas, he was known. He was known for his generosity, particularly actually to children and uh, and particularly for sailors. Now, there was a story actually about a poor man who had three daughters. Uh, in those days, uh, a young woman's father, she actually had to. Uh, he actually was supposed to provide the dowry in, in order for them to be able to get married. Now, this poor man's daughters, without without dowries, you know, dowries, their, 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 their real destiny, their only real kind of uh, hope in life was actually t- probably to be sold into slavery. Now, mysteriously, what happened, though, is that these little bags of gold would kind of just drop in through an open window into this man's house. And the first, the first one he used as the dowry for his first daughter and was able to get her married off. But then a second bag came in through the window And with that, he used as a dowry for his second daughter. And it was only on the third one that he managed to actually catch Nicholas in the act of him actually going and dropping that bag of coins in through the window. In fact, as legend of this grew, that actually became the custom for which people hang stockings out there to kind of get some of the good gifts from the Nicholas, St. Nicholas. And then later on, uh, this is many, uh, many, many centuries on, a poem uh, called A Visit from St. Nicholas, which you might know as The Night Before Christmas, uh, now uh, kind of took that legend and inspired by uh, the stories of Nicholas, uh, then went and uh, uh, had him as this character on a sleigh who went around bringing toys and sweets for children on Christmas Eve. 
So yeah, you might want to decry the commercialism of, of Santa Claus, but actually there is a deep basis here, this story of someone inspired, inspired by God's mercy, by God's love for the humble, for those in need. So you see, you know, the whole uh, tradition of generosity, gift-giving at Christmas, it's a good thing in so much as it reflects God's goodness, His generosity, His mercy. You know, I think it might be a good reason for us, even here today as Christians, to consider giving to charities around Christmas. I think that would be a great way to kind of continue living out that tradition of giving to those who are without need at Christmas. But church, in a bigger picture, this is the wonder of Christmas. This is the reminder that God has been phenomenally gracious and kind and merciful to us. Us humble sinners in need of a king who would come and lay down his life for us. Well, friends, let's give thanks and praise and pray now in light of, uh, in light of the king that we do have in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the king that we have in Jesus, the long-promised king, the one who comes to serve, to serve the humble, the needy, the hungry. Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize that we are all in that state. We are all in a state of spiritual poverty. Indeed, Lord, we can only become part of your kingdom when we are served by the rich king who came down to lay down his life for us. Father, we want to thank you. We want to praise you. We want to be in awe of your wonder and your mercy to us. And Father, as this Christmas comes around, might we be indeed be a people who continue to embody that tradition of generosity, that we might serve and, and love those around us, that we might even love the stranger, love the one in need, and we do that out of our joy and awe of what you have already done for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I think we're going to take a little moment to...